Welcome to the Governance, Law, and Economics Lecture Series, hosted by the Koch Center for Leadership and Ethics at Emporia State University. The Governance, Law, and Economics Lecture Series is designed to highlight the three institutions that must work together to support and defend a free civil society. Joining us today is Dr. Crystal Dozier. Dr. Dozier is an anthropological archaeologist with over a decade of field experience. Her work has garnered wide attention as featured by Smithsonian Magazine, National Geographic, Archaeology Magazine, and more. Today, Dr. Dozier will discuss the myth of primitive socialism. Right? It's this idea that um, this 
uh, communal living in hunters and gatherers for the vast majority of our history was equal on all planes and produced a kind of um, peaceful uh, society. Um, that is the ancient roots to socialism, uh, the idea of modern socialism. Uh, and so in, in understanding this myth, I, I want to turn first to some definitions. Uh, because different people have different understandings, especially when I use words such as socialism or communism or even egalitarianism, right? So to be egalitarian is a situation in which members of society have relative equalness in resources. That is, that you have access to pretty much the same set of resources, the same set of goods as anyone else in, in your community. Um, this is contrasted with what is, and for a lot of people, uh, egalitarianism is equated to socialism. Right, this idea that being uh, socialistic means that everyone is equal. Uh, in the academic realm, though, socialism has a particular uh, history associated with that word, and it comes from Marx, Karl Marx, where socialism specifically means a shared or a public means of production. So for those of you business uh, majors, you may have heard this term, you may not have, right? Uh, the means of production are the facilities and resources needed to produce goods. So this is your raw materials, this is your equipment, these are the actual resources by which you make goods in that society. That's contrasted with the mode of production, um, sometimes also in anthropology called the mode of subsistence. That is, the way in which people go, by, go about gathering those goods. Uh, so a mode of subsistence is foraging. You all use foraging and hunting gathering kind of uh, equidistantly uh, in this presentation. That can mean subsistence farming. Um, what most people are used to talking about the means and mode of production comes with the industrial age, right? So uh, the turn of using factories versus human labor to produce different goods. Um, under, uh, under these definitions, socialism specifically means those public means of production. That is, all members of the community have access to whatever the, the resources that are necessary to produce goods. This is contrasted with uh, communism, which for the purposes of this talk, speaks to a shared means of production, but one that is shared through the um, auspices of a formal government, right? So government controls the form the, or the means of production and allocates it publicly through a government system. For most of what we're going to be talking about today, we're talking about pre-state societies, so pre-governmental societies. Uh, modern Homo sapiens uh, evolved around 200,000 years ago. Uh, we now know in Central Africa and a vast majority of our human history is as mobile foraging communities. Um, it's only in the last 12,000 years that we have agricultural mode of production. Uh, this long history of, of human foraging 
is only relatively recently known. So I want to start this when we're talking about this myth that foraging societies are very are ultimately absolutely communal. Um, actually, comes oops, I went too far. There we go. <coughs> from the thought of Lewis Henry Morgan. Has anyone in this room heard of Lewis Henry Morgan? A couple, just the professors. Oh, and someone else. All right. <laughs> So uh, Lewis Henry Morgan is this lovely gentleman with some good facial hair, but not quite as impressive facial hair uh, as Karl Marx. Uh, he was an American um, bureaucrat in many ways. He worked in government and he worked um, for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Uh, he was also one of the very first anthropologists in the United States. Now, Lewis Henry Morgan spent a lot of time living among indigenous people, oh, not a lot of time, like a month and a half, of going and visiting uh, different indigenous, Northern, indigenous Native American groups in the Northeast, so the Iroquois and uh, similar groups. From his time interacting with those groups, uh, he wrote a book called Ancient Society, or researches in the lines of human progress from savagery through barbarism to civilization, which was published in 1877. Um, what Lewis Henry Morgan did is he said, okay, we have all of these different Native American tribes here in the Northeast, and I think that they uh, represent different stages of human cultural evolution, where the, um, the lowest stage, <coughs> um, are, are represent tribal entities that are savages to a slightly more complex form that represents barbarism to the ultimate um, kind of stage of human evolution which would be civilization which was represented through, um, through European civilization especially. So we call this unilineal cultural evolution. This idea that each culture moves through these direct stages one after another. And it is a one direct line. Um, this is, of course, um, very problematic in several ways. Uh, the first way in which we know that it's, it's difficult is that, uh, first of all, is the names, right? No one is actually savage or barbaric. Um, but there are different ways of getting your foods, whether you're foragers, or uh, hunt our farmers, right? Um, also, he built this evolution from <coughs> current existing indigenous groups. Although the word that he has, the word ancient in the title, he did not look at the past at all. He just said, oh, okay, these groups who are foragers seem the least developed, and therefore they must be at the bottom, right? And those are going to be the hunters and gatherers. And those who look more developed are foragers. Therefore, they must be somewhere in the middle, right? With agricultural industrial societies all the way up at the end. Uh, despite this, um, so, and this was a very uh, common model within the 19th century. I think Lewis Henry Morgan um, just a, did a really nice job tapping into the overall consensus of the 19th century with his model. And in fact, it's uh, a model that very much reflects something very similar to what Karl Marx did. So who's heard of Karl Marx? 
There we go. That's a name that's a little bit more familiar in this community. So uh, Karl Marx has a much more ecstatic hairdo. And um, his probably, the reason why you probably know Karl Marx is due to the very popular, um, in, in uh, later times, uh, booklet, The Communist Manifesto. Has anyone read The, Ca the Communist Manifesto in this room? Only a couple. All right. So you've heard of him. You may not have read it. Um, he also wrote a, a more um, elaborated and much less uh, uh, engaging book called Das Kapital, or Capital, in which he lays out economic theory of the development of the industrial age. Now, within Karl Marx's um, understanding of human history, he lays out a very similar model to Lewis Henry Morgan. And it's very clear that he was clearly inspired by the writings of L.H. Morgan. He has a book. He writes letters to, to Engels, whom we'll talk about next, that says he's reading this book and he really likes a lot of the concepts in it. But for Marx, he also has a model of unilinear cultural stagial cultural evolution. That is this idea that culture moves through stages, and it moves through these stages in a row, right? That is, there's only one line of progress. For him, uh, it starts with uh, tribalism, right? The hunters and gatherers. And then you move on to um, a similar barbarian phase. But then you, you get into the landed across the seas, uh, aristocrac yeah, aristocracies, and you have the, the emergence of the bourgeoisie. Um, in the after, the, the emergence of this uh, bourgeoisie form of human civilization, there is revolution um, and the end of capitalism that uh, results in the proletariat, there we go, I got too excited, uh, revolting and inserting um, socialism or communism into uh, the end stage of society. At each one of these stages, there is thought to be a stage of conflict in which there is, um, that's the dialectic where uh, uh, the workers are separated by the means of production and there is some kind of conflict or revolution that occurs. Right. So that's um, broadly what, what Karl Marx was thinking. He died around the same time as Lewis Henry Morgan and this was picked up by his uh, writing partner of Frederick Engels. So um, Frederick Engels co-wrote um, the Communist Manifesto um, and a lot, um, as well as other academic works. Uh, Karl Marx had started a work based on the work of Lewis Henry Morgan. Um, it had made notes into the margins, but died before he could finish the work. Uh, so Frederick Engels took Marx's notes, and he took uh, he took uh, Louis H. Morgan's Ancient Society, and he wrote his own uh, interpretation, which is called The Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State. Um, in English, generally, it's shortened to just the origin of the family. If you're familiar with any philosophical or economic 
German treatises of the 19th century, they need to have 18 words. Uh, so, so Engels followed that tradition very well. Uh, that was published shortly after the death of Marx, uh, with the first English edition coming out in 1902. Uh, this is probably the most uh, important work when it comes to the establishment of the idea of primitive communism or primitive socialism. Um, Engels states that due to the way in which Lewis Henry Morgan describes these stages of human evolution, that, uh, that the origins of human societies are in primitive communism. In his description of primitive, he uses the terms, or it's often translated into primitive communism. What he means by primitive socialism, I think from the terms of our talk, is that you had these matrilineal societies, which are the basis of all human societies. And because they were matrilineal, um, there was reduced conflict, relative equality between men and women, um, and the sharing of property. He saw the origins of, of property, uh, private property, tied into uh, the um, the change in social structure from a matrilineal society that is controlled by women into a patrilineal society that is controlled by men. He argued that by having um, a patrilineal society in which marriage comes with both a woman and her property that demarcates the first um, existence of private property, which private property goes against the ethos of this end stage of uh, democratic communistic utopia, right? Um, this is a very uh, lovely idea. I, I, I would definitely say so. Uh, this idea that, that the vast majority of human history was composed by um, a world in which men and women had relative equality, in which all property was shared, in which there was no private property that demarcates my land from your land, and uh, it just makes me want to hold hands and sing Kambayu, right? Um, it's a lovely idea. And as such, it, it really uh, attracted a lot of um, attraction, with, particularly within um, within researchers who are interested in the Marxist tradition. Uh, people like August Mabel or Rosa Luxemburg clearly um, adopted these kind of ideas. Um, August Mabel, for, I'll just read this one quote. The line of, who wrote this book, Women Under Socialism, uh, the line of human development returns at the end of its journey, right, culminating in communism, to social structures similar to those of primal society, only at much higher levels of culture. The whole development forms a spiral heading upwards, whose end point is exactly above this, the star, right? Um, which is a very romantic way of looking at um, um, all sorts of socialist revolution, right? This idea that the utopia envisioned by the Marxists and the communists would somehow reflect ancient, basic modes of human subsistence. Um, and thus, in kind of this idea became ingrained as well into um, Marxist 
academic thought as well. And there is good reason why this romanticism, I think, really stuck through. Uh, to, con to contrast that view, right, the myth of primitive communism, is this other myth we have of, of ancient societies. And I'm going to call that, no offense, Hobbes, um, the Hobbesian myth, just because he has the most uh, familiar stating of, of ancient society that in which that our human history is one of no arts, no letters, no society, and which is, worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death, and of the life of man solitary, poor, nasty, brunish, and short. Right? That's a far starkly different consideration of what human history has been like. Um, if you were to choose between these two images of what we think, the vast majority of human history is like, I would much rather take the matrilineal societies with no property, right? Um, and I think these provide two far different viewpoints of which it's important to contrast and what we think life in the past may have been like. Neither of which I think are, are accurate. <coughs> right? Um, and it's this, I think the Hobbesian myth, within anthropology, was the, the Hobbesian myth of, of uh, prehistory that was particularly important for anthropologists to try and resist against. Uh, that is because the myth of, of this more violent view of human history meant that those individuals who are living in foraging communities are also associated with all of those negative things um, in the Hobbesian view of ancient society. And anthropology as a discipline is much more interested in describing the cooperative forms of human engagement. So um, within anthropology in the 20th century, there was an interest in describing foraging peoples as um, more open to their, um, more cooperative in their life ways. And there began more studies that were looking at foraging communities and uh, their particular forms of economic relationships. Uh, the most probably prominent researcher in this vein is Marshall Solins. Oh, sorry, Marshall should have two L's, that's a typo. I found it. I always have one, you always have one typo, so I had to find it, right? Uh, and Marshall Solins put forward this idea, um, which is now called the original affluent society. Anyone heard of Marshall Solins? The lonely couple up front. All right. So Marshall Solins um, is very broadly within, um, maybe a, you might call it a neo-Marxist academic tradition. Um, one of his committee members on his dissertations, on his dissertation was Carl Polanyi, um, who was a, another famous economic anthropologist for like the four people who knew that who knows who that is in the front row, um, and who was interested in these similar concepts of primitive uh, socialism, the idea that particularly within the agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution that private property was not um, enhancing to human society. All right, so Marshall Stallings wrote this um, article 
called the Original Affluent Society, in which he argues that um, foraging peoples are not nasty, poor, brutish, and short at all, but rather that they have a, a different kind of affluence. That is, they're not affluent because they have a lot of material items, but because they have uh, plenty of leisure time and leisure activities. Um, the original affluent society is modeled off of um, the, the Kung or the San Bushmen who live in um, the Southern Kalahari in Africa. And Marshall Solins went and observed their life ways um, to come up with this hypothesis, and which has been reaffirmed in various studies, that foraging doesn't require any more calories to do, nor does it take necessarily um, any more uh, active time as agriculturalists. That agriculturalists, especially those who work in, um, in subsistence farming, <coughs> spend far much more time trying to get resources than you have in foraging communities, right? Um, this also kind of relates back to this idea that foraging communities are living um, in especially primitive societies, lived in a, in a situation of relative equality and relative abundance, right? So after um, the original affluent society came out, he complemented that book called, with one, a whole book called Stone Age Economics, in which he argued that because foragers that he had observed in Africa in the 1970s had all this leisure time and activity, then that must be the original condition of human society. <coughs> the, the issue that I want to point out here, though, is that looking at at um, foraging communities in the ethnographic present, that is, sometime during the advent of colonialism into the present, does not necessarily reflect what we would expect of foraging peoples of the past, right? So uh, the, the Kalahari Bushmen have been living in this environment for at least 4,000 years. Within this time, they've been African trading partners with horticulturalists that also live in neighboring regions, um, as well as pastoralists. So they are not um, alone in the wilderness, kind of uh, forming their own economic condition. Nor do I think that it's right to assume that modern people, right, modern human beings, living in a, in a very specific environment, are models for the rest of human history, right? It gets us dangerously close to this idea um, that has stuck with, uh, the, with, I think, modern consensus thought that somehow African or foraging peoples are uninvolved, right? It's the same idea that, that, that uh, foraging people today are the same as human ancestors. And I really, um, really rather opposed to that view of modeling, oops, that's how angry I am about it, I gotta pick something, right? Modeling modern human beings, uh, particularly in non-Western parts of the world, um, as reflective of, of non-human foragers, right? I think that's 
kind of iffy. Um, as well as factually untrue. There's been a lot of movement in the last, people have been living in, in this area of the world for at least 150,000 years. And uh, you talk to any ethnographer and there are very complex forms of, of, um, of telling folk tales and social relationships and uh, rituals that are seen among these different foraging groups, even within the Kalahari, right? So modeling our conception of human history um, off of them alone, I think, is very difficult. We also need to recognize that the ethnographic present, that is the time in which ethnographies, the vast majority of ethnographies were being written about indigenous people, were being done in an environment that is vastly different than what human evolution and human the spread of human beings across the earth happened. Right? Oh, I just there we go. So at the time of um, the greatest extent of European colonialism in the 1850s, um, the time in which Karl Marx and Louis H. Morgan were writing their treatises, the distribution of, this is the distribution of pedestrian-based foraging peoples, right? So that is, who is going on foot hunting and gathering? What do you notice about these areas of the world? Are these the areas of the greatest bioproductivity? Right? No, these are, in many cases, these are the marginalized environments of, of the world. That foragers within the ethnographic present represent adaptations to very specific environments that are um, suboptimal for farming. Um, and there's a fair amount of evidence that when you have the rise of agriculture in different areas of the world at different times, that foraging peoples were moved into these least productive zones. I mean, I'm just saying, right? That if you are living in that environment, it's not because, not necessarily, though it can be that you don't want to farm, is that there is no opportunity for uh, agricultural development in that area. That makes sense, mm -hmm. probably, okay. Um, <coughs> I also want to argue that we I've never heard an argument um, for, for this kind of unilineal development being made that, that we should regard um, any peoples in Europe filling the same role as in, indigenous folks of the, um, of the non-Western world. So, this, I think this, this conflation within the ethnographic presence to ancient societies is really tenuous. There are times in which, in which studying foraging people can be very useful to modern foraging people to reconstruct our idea of what happened in the past. But you have to be really careful about what you think um, can translate, right? What we do know fairly solidly is that um, many foraging groups have strong forms of egalitarianism. Right? So then there is relative equality within a group. Um, is that you don't see, in many cases, a very large uh, difference in 
in um, access to food or access to other resources, right? And again, I want to contrast this, though, with a shared, with socialism, this idea that there's a shared means of production. So let's, let's explore that a little further. What would a shared means of production look like for hunters and gathering type people? Right, the shared means of production. I see it in two, two kind of avenues. Right, the actual tools in which people use, and then as well as the idea of property, right, or territory. This idea that you have access to the same um, natural resources. Um, and I want to tease this apart a little bit. So I said already that in general among foraging communities, you tend to see more egalitarian forms. But in all human societies, you still see um, gender and age divisions. Um, and in many ways, in foraging communities, your demographic status within that society is um, much more constraining than you might see in other societies. Right. So being more uh, male or female has very distinct pathways for your, your opportunities later in life, as well as the role that you're going to play in getting resources for that society. Um, in different, uh, in different, depending on where you're looking, those differences in the resources coming in can be wildly different. So um, among uh, the San, who are a similar group within uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, there's almost no differences in the calories received between men and women. Um, among the, um, the fishing peoples of the Pacific Northwest, however, um, whose, although they were foragers in the fact that they were fishermen, um, they were living in sedentary, large-scale large remains couple thousand settlements, um, and you had wildly different access to uh, food, right? Um, and a lot of these, um, these studies, you'll show how food sharing is very common among foraging peoples, but they always follow very succinct roles. The hunter always gets uh, the prime cut, and then there are rules for who gets the cuts after that, right? It's a very actually complex system of um, uh, exchanging goods. Not necessarily equal, too. There is a distinction made between who gets the front end of the animal versus the back end um, and what those prize cuts are, right? Age also has a huge, plays into a huge factor of the opportunities within um, especially mobile hunting and gathering societies. So um, there are demographic differences seen within these uh, foraging communities, right? Again, looking at the means of production as to whether or not that's representative of socialism under you know, Marx's kind of terminology, um, a shared, you do not very often see shared tools within uh, foraging communities, right? Um, if we're going to take a very strict definition of socialism 
You might expect if this is even a foraging community, they'd have like a big stockpile of like bows and arrows or something, right? Right in the middle of the village and everybody shares them and then returns them after you're done. And a very strict definition, that might be your expectation. And we don't see, we don't see modern uh, hunters and gatherers doing those kinds of things. Instead you see that individual hunters or individual gatherers maintain their own personal stock of tools necessary for the hunt or the gathering. Um, you might have um, also different food processing tools such as um, mortars and pestles among foraging groups. That is, that you maintain your own very stock of, of what you're hunting and you are very often expected to produce your own tools. That is, um, it's not until um, chiefdom level societies that you see specialization where one person makes the tools for everyone. Does that make sense? Right? So under the strict definition of, of socialism, you don't quite see it in the ethnographic present. Um, similarly with property, right? Under strict, uh, under strict definition of, of primitive communism or primitive socialism, you would expect that um, all property, um, that there is no personal property, and that uh, territorialism would decline because different, there are other social mechanisms for allocating access to various resources. Um, and we don't see that to, there, I think people tend to think that private property doesn't exist um, among foraging people. Um, and it's true that it, not in a legal sense does private property exist, but there does seem to be um, uh, notions of communal-based or familially-based sense of ownership that we see in territorialism. That is, my group works in this part of the forest, that group works in that part of the forest, right? This is my group's ancestral hunting ground that's that group's ancestral hunting grounds, right? And between those groups, even if they speak the same language and they have other similar forms of cultural um, practices, is that there are mechanisms that let you know that you are not necessarily supposed to be getting resources without following through um, or asking permission in some, some form, right? And over time, you see the, that this kind of um, kin-based territorialism results in different language groups, different cultural traditions, and the like. Now, um, again, I think this means that under strict definitions of, of um, primitive socialism, now we don't quite see it in the ethnographic present, but I can understand where if you take a looser definition of socialism, that means egalitarianism, um, individually you might say those are fairly equitable. Right? Um, I also would argue that when you, when you look in a strict sense, right, in a strict definition of primitive communism, all individuals would have access to similar kinds of uh, modes of production. And instead we see, at a very basal level, 
human societies do have a division of labor divided on gender, right? That's even Adam Smith said that. And the division of labor, um, even in uh, the most basic of societies, comes down to the division between men's work and women's work. Um, and if you take a large-scale view of all human societies, there are very few roles that only men do all the time and only women do all the time, and then if there's third or <coughs> other gender categories that are specific to that social role, right, um, they are the following thing, right, that, oh, 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 wrong one, I figured it out, okay. So the only uh, overreaching role is that uh, men are almost always associated with the hunting large aquatic animals. Um, that'd be things like whales, right? And lifting very heavy objects. Um, not the most complex form of division of labor and not you know, applicable in all cases, but a generalized division of labor, right? The women's roles are a little bit uh, more, uh, are more specific, and it has to do more with biology, right, in that women almost universally are associated with child rearing and the raising of children and domestic cooking processes. So men can, can sometimes, in certain societies, overtake um, ritualized or specialized cooking technologies but in almost all societies, women do the majority of domestic cooking activities. In societies in which have a third, or third gender role or other gender roles, um, not male or female, uh, it almost always um, supplies a very specific um, spiritual or uh, ceremonial role within that society. So that there's a specific role for um, for societies that have a recognized non-male or female category. Could you give us an example of that society? Yeah, so among, um, among the Navajo and other Native American groups in North America, um, you can have um, what's called two-spirit people that are recognized as a fully separate category as neither male nor female. And those individuals um, specifically take on the role of um, shamanistic advisors, so they take on a spiritual ro role because they have access to knowledge that is both male and female. So they're especially regarded when it comes to getting advice for um, advising the tribe for the role in particular uh, spiritual matters, and they're very often the first people that are turned to to adopt orphaned children. So they play a very specific role in that society. All societies recognize male and female, and then sometimes you have other options. Does that answer your question? Yeah. So that's looking at the ethnographic reasons why I think um, this primitive socialism doesn't make sense, which is built off of this analogy from modern foraging peoples in terms of archaeological correlates, right, it gets a little bit difficult, I think, to identify, right? So again, using our strict definition of primitive communism or primitive socialism, we'd be interested in looking for um, shared means of production, which means shared tools and um, the lack of territorialism or private property. 
Um, maybe also if you want to specifically take Engel's perspective on uh, matrilineal societies, you'd also want to look for patterns of female or male exogamy, the idea that the males are leaving kinship groups and the women are, are the one in power. This is rather uh, difficult to tell for, I think, most of the archaeological past due to the nature of our data, right? You can tell these things of, of sharing tools and whether or not you have property markers and if you have folks uh, married in or outside the group, but most of those markers are if you have cemeteries. That is that you can, um, and some foraging peoples do have cemeteries, which you can tell, hey, this person was always, you know, are buried with things that look like it was meant for them, right? Some idea at some level of private property, right? Or that uh, we only find um, this archeological culture within these very strict boundaries it looks like they didn't allow any other biological population to use this territory, right? Um, looking at the biological relationships of those within cemeteries. Uh, you can also look at the sexual selection patterns by saying, okay, are within a cemetery, do you have these, um, <coughs> these who is exogamous uh, in these cemeteries? Is it the men coming and the women are, are stable or is it the other way around? Right? And I, I am not ready to say that there is 100% a consensus in the 150,000 years of human history. Uh, presumably there is a great diversity in that time period of different social arrangements. Um, which <coughs> may or may not have had some of these features, but without this data, I, I'm not ready to say yes for certain, right? What I do know is that in sedentary communities, even sedentary communities that had um, foraging lifeways still, so those are hunters and gatherers but who lived in one place or who buried their folks in one place, you do see these markers of private ownership that is, that you see individuals buried within their own grave goods. Um, that you see individuals um, that have, that there are some instances of territorialism. Um, in terms of, of, of endo versus exogamy, um, most places have a female out movement, but not all places. Um, so that's pretty equivalent. That whether or not, uh, I don't think you can generalize to say all prehistoric societies were matrilineal until you hit agriculture, right? So, um, in conclusion, I want to uh, have our idea of prehistory as somewhere um, between these two stages of the myths, right, of primitive communism and the myth of the Hobbesian. Uh, disaster, right? Is that uh, definitely? Uh, it is very unlikely. It is very unlikely that in the far distant <coughs> past that you have something that matches the strict definition of, of of primitive socialism, right? Definitely not the strict definition. Um, and what I do know, 
right, is that agricultural societies in um, cultural forms that became predominant for the majority of the world did not have these forms of social relationships. Um, it's likely that there was a diversity of social arrangements um, within any biological community, such as humans. Diversity of social arrangements is a good thing, right? Um, that figures out what kinds of arrangements are productive versus which forms of arrangements are not. Um, and agricultural societies maintained this individual ownership type um, arrangements and became um, more successful in establishing territory and increased um, population densities, right? This is this very idea that over time, as more and more people came on the landscape, more and more resources need to come out of the landscape, which increases the land use intensity. That is, you need to get more resources out of the same aspects of land. And, and this forms of socialization, I think, um, in, increased uh, feasting and forms of individual ownership that we see into the agricultural period. All right, and I think that's really all we have time for. Thank you so much for being a lovely audience. Thank you for listening to the Governance, Law, and Economics Lecture Series. To stay up to date on all the lectures in the series, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you prefer. For information on upcoming lectures and other events and activities hosted by the Koch Center for Leadership and Ethics at Emporia State University, follow us on Twitter at Koch Center or on Facebook at Koch Center ESU.